Welcome to PwC's Accounting Podcast Series. I'm Heather Horn. Today's topic is reference rate reform. While the transition away from LIBOR has been discussed for quite some time, as companies continue their multi-phase preparation, we thought it'd be helpful to provide listeners with an update on the phase-out timeline, as well as answering a few frequently asked questions. My guests today are PwC National Office Partners, Chip Curry and David Challen. Chip and David specialize in financial instruments and have both appeared on a quarterly webcast, which, if you haven't already done so, don't forget to register for our Q1 webcast. We're offering three dates, so lots of opportunities to not miss out. A link to the sign-up will be in today's show notes or check out cfodirect.com. So... With all the introductions and webcast plug out of the way, let's get started. David Chip, thanks so much for joining me today for an update on a topic that is perhaps not top of mind for many of our listeners, but hopefully something they'll be turning their attention to as soon as they get through their year-end close, and that would be LIBOR. And specifically, David, I thought we could start things off by just giving the quick background on why people should care about this topic right now. Sure. And uh, thanks for having me on. So LIBOR stands for the London Interbank Offered Rate. So LIBOR is a benchmark interest rate, and it gets published in five major currencies, including the US dollar, euro, and British pound. And it's often quoted as being one of the most important numbers in the world. And the reason for that is because it's so prevalently referenced and used throughout our global financial markets. And just to put some context around that, roughly today, we have around $300 trillion worth of financial instruments that currently reference some form of LIBOR. And of that, around $200 trillion reference US dollar LIBOR. And most of those contracts are things like derivatives, so think interest rate swaps, but it's also used in a lot of other financial instruments like loan and borrowing agreements. And the reason we're talking about it today is that for some time now, there's been talk and signals that LIBOR as a benchmark rate is going to stop being published and replaced by other benchmark rates. And we're getting close to a time along that continuum where that's looking like it's going to be a reality shortly. Okay, so then, David, maybe just expand on that a little bit. As we think specifically about the U.S., which those are crazy numbers that you were quoting, who is responsible for LIBOR? And maybe even more specifically, who are some of the key organizations that are involved? So when I said that the L in LIBOR stands for London, hopefully that's not a spoiler that the organization responsible for publishing LIBOR is based in the United Kingdom. So that organization is the Intercontinental Exchange Benchmark Administration. So we shorten that to the IBA. And the IBA is the one responsible for going out and soliciting from a panel of banks various quotes, and then it does the calculation. And each day it then publishes those LIBOR rates. Now, not surprisingly, given the prevalence and pervasiveness of LIBOR, there are many regulators, not just in the United Kingdom, but across the world that have a vested interest in ensuring the sustainability and ensuring that we have a smooth transition away from LIBOR to replacement benchmark rates. And so in the United States, the regulators specifically that took an interest on this early on included the Federal Reserve Board and specifically the New York Fed. So a number of years ago, early on in this process, they established a committee 
made up of banks, asset managers, insurance companies, industry groups, and other ex-officio members to essentially come together and think about what all the issues need to be thought through during this transition away from LIBOR and starting to really think about how to solve a lot of these problems. So that committee is called the Alternative Reference Rate Committee, which we refer to as ARC. And then the other organization I'd point out that I think is important is also the International Swaps and Derivatives Association, which we shortened to ISDA. And that's a not-for-profit organization that's mission is all around ensuring an efficient global markets for derivative instruments. And just given the prevalence of LIBOR being used in the derivatives market, they're another key organization that ensures a standardization of terms across derivative products to help promote that efficient derivatives market going forward. So where are we with this? Do we really think it's going away? And is this really something people should start focusing on now? Yeah. So the IBA, which is the organization I mentioned responsible for publishing LIBOR, has issued a consultation that lays out its plan for when it's officially planning to end LIBOR. So that consultation was issued in December that just passed so so recently, and that consultation period ended in January. And so we're going to hear any day now what the results of that consultation is. And based on that, we're expecting to also hear what the official end date for LIBOR will be. So then does that mean we would expect LIBOR to stop publishing immediately? Yeah, so fortunately not. It's not going to be that dramatic. The way the proposal works in the consultation is that they're planning to cease the publication of non-US dollar LIBOR. So think things like British pound LIBOR and euro LIBOR at the end of this year. So that would be December 31st, 2021. And then for US dollar LIBOR, the plan is to cease the publication of some of the terms. So that would be the one-week LIBOR rate and the two-month LIBOR rate at the end of this year. But reality is those types of terms aren't as commonly found in most instruments. So the more common term rates, so think things like one-month LIBOR or three-month LIBOR, are planning to end in June 2023. Okay, so very helpful context. So Chip, you've been sitting, I'm sure, waiting for your first question. And with all of that background and the fact that we're saying, okay, this really is coming now and it is something worth paying attention to, what should companies be thinking about? Yeah, sure. I mean, I know like that 2023 date seems like a long way away, but it really doesn't mean that you should do nothing for two years. It's really important for companies to complete their inventory of contracts and agreements that reference a reference rate that's going away, whether that be LIBOR or another one of the interbank rates that are going away. And David mentioned some of the agreements that we see them in. We see them in derivatives. We see them in lending agreements. We see them in debt securities. Um, But we can also see them in intercompany lending arrangements, you know, where you have a central treasury center lending money to other aspects of the business or other parts of the organization. You can see it in leasing and you can see it in other agreements, really anywhere where there's an agreement where there may need to be compensation for interest because of deferred cash payments or receivables and things like that. Uh, The regulators in the U.S. have been encouraging the U.S. banks to move away from LIBOR as soon as practical. So, for example, They've suggested that no new transactions referencing LIBOR should be entered into after December of 2021. And as a matter of fact, the ARC, one of the organizations that David referred to earlier, has actually recommended no new issuances after June. 
And what that 2023 date was really designed to do is to allow older contracts that don't have a provision in it that contemplate like a permanent disappearance of the LIBOR rate. Most contracts contemplate LIBOR not being available due to a short-term market disruption or something like that, but not really, you know, kind of a permanent disappearance of the rate. And so 2023 is really designed to let a lot of those legacy contracts sort of run off and mature. You know, the punchline is really companies should be actively engaging in looking for processes and procedures around replacing LIBOR and any other rate that could be going away as a result of reference rate reform. I definitely want to come back to exactly what companies should be doing, but I think this raises a key question and something we haven't talked about yet, which is, is there going to be a replacement for LIBOR? And specifically, David, I know you talked about the different types of LIBOR and the fact it's not just one rate. And I know we've talked about different potential replacements. So just wanted to get a sense from you of what we might expect to see. In terms of some replacement benchmark rates to LIBOR, one of the things that the ARC did very early on was to identify what the recommended replacement benchmark rate would be for US dollar LIBOR. And the rate that they've landed on is called the Secured Overnight Financing Rate, which gets shortened to SOFR. And one of the key fundamental differences between SOFR and LIBOR is the fact that SOFR is a daily overnight rate. So what that means is is that it resets each day, whereas LIBOR, as we've been talking about, has different settings or terms associated with it. So from a treasurer's perspective, one of the attractive things about a term rate is the fact that you know at the start of the period what the rate is going to be. So you know from a cash management perspective how much interest you're going to need to pay out at the end of the term or how much interest you're going to receive at the end of the term. As opposed to with an overnight rate like SOFR, you don't know what the cash movement is going to be until you get to the end of that one-month period or three-month period or whatever the term is because you need to wait to see what the actual rate was each day to then come up with the calculation for what the amount is going to be. So as part of the transition, one of the things that the ARC had on their roadmap was to develop a SOFR term rate. And based on that roadmap, their goal is to have a SOFR term rate established by the end of the first half of 2021. That being said, even once the ARC has identified and established a SOFR term rate, the reality is it's going to take some time before that rate becomes commercially viable, just because you need to wait for a certain amount of liquidity in terms of having enough transactions underlying that new term structure before people will feel likely comfortable to include having financial instruments referencing that rate. And that's all going to take time to develop, which unfortunately, companies really don't have the luxury of that time, given where we are in the overall timeline with LIBOR going away. So answer is, is that while a SOFA term rate might be coming, it's probably not something that companies should wait around for as part of their LIBOR transition plan. Okay. So then David, let me ask you another question going back to something Chip said, which is that he had indicated that the sort of 2023 date was to allow old contracts to run off. But even with that extension, I know that there are older LIBOR contracts out there that there isn't a provision in them for what would happen if LIBOR went away and that are going to extend beyond 2023. So what's going to happen in those cases? For that population that you just described, Heather, for those longer dated LIBOR contracts that go out past 2023 
And those contracts were set up where it never really contemplated this scenario of LIBOR going away permanently. And for whatever reason, it's really difficult to get the parties together to actually amend the terms of that contract to now replace LIBOR to come up with the mechanism for what's going to happen when LIBOR goes away. So for that population of contracts out there that kind of meet all that criteria, the ARC is pursuing a legislative proposal to, to try to resolve those types of contracts. And so the ARC has drafted proposed uh, legislative language, and that has been submitted with the New York State legislature. So that's currently sitting there and it's going through that review process. So again, it's, it's another tool in the toolbox of trying to deal with the LIBOR transition in conjunction with all the other tools we've been describing. But it's probably not the ideal tool for companies to sit back and just wait for that process to play out and rely on that as their primary mechanism to deal with these types of contracts. And I guess, David, in addition to what's going on from a legislative perspective, a number of the industry groups that you mentioned earlier on, like the ARC and ISDA and in the loan space like LSTA, they've proposed certain standardized like fallback language that people can leverage and incorporate into agreements, whether they are incorporating newly entered into LIBOR agreements so that you don't compound the problem of contracts out there that don't have that kind of permanent disappearing of LIBOR language in it, as well as for you know legacy contracts, you can go in and modify those contracts with the counterparty by adding these fallback language into the agreement is what they've referred it to. But similar to the legislative solution, you know, the, the fallback language isn't probably what you want to primarily rely on. These are more of like almost seatbelts like that you have in the car. They're, they're there to design to make sure that you don't, you know, leave things with no contemplation in there, but they shouldn't necessarily be your first line of defense. So Chip, can you just give us a quick rundown of some of the key accounting issues companies should be thinking about? Yeah. So the first question that I think a lot of people ask is if we enter into these contracts or issue these arrangements that have a a daily interest rate reset feature. And in some cases, like David said, the, the rates would reset based upon average rates or things like that is whether or not these created any embedded derivatives under the derivative guidance that would have to be separately accounted for. And so to begin addressing that, one of the industry groups actually went to the SEC, the Securities and Exchange Commission, and pre-cleared some of the more standard types of arrangements that thought would exist in the software world to get concurrence from the SEC that these wouldn't have embedded derivatives that would require separate accounting. Um, and while the SEC only addressed a handful of fact patterns, they certainly indicated that they'd be more than happy to talk about additional fact patterns as the market develops. So that, that's one thing. The second thing is the FASB issued some guidance acknowledging that people might be in modifying contract arrangements, and there may be impacts on hedge accounting as cash instruments and derivatives may go through the process of converting to these alternative rates at, on different timeframes. And so the FASB issued Topic 848 designed to give relief to contract modifications and hedge accounting when people are making amendments to agreements. And those amendments are really focused on and, and solely really relate to the changing from LIBOR to another reference rate. So there is a, a standard setting solution that's been out there as well. And the last thing on, on accounting I'll say is the FASB is very closely watching what's going on and how things are developing and have shown the willingness and the ability to jump in and react quickly. Uh, they recently issued an, a standard to help with some of 
changes that were being made for derivatives that are cleared through central clearing parties. And they are very closely monitoring what's going on from a LIBOR perspective to determine, one, if additional relief is needed, or two, if they need to change when that topic 848 guidance is set to expire or sunset. So then a lot to think about here, right? Because you just ran through a bunch of accounting issues. David earlier talked about a bunch of more business issues. And so now I'm a CFO or I'm a treasurer or I'm a controller. Where do I focus first? Like, do I start with accounting? Do I start with business? And so maybe David, I'll go to you first and then Chip, I'll have you weigh in as well on that. Yeah. And I think we touched on some of these already, but I think the first starting point is really just taking an inventory of where your LIBOR exposure is in your contracts. And so the obvious places to look would be to start with things like derivatives and loan contracts, but then also start thinking beyond just those as well. So some examples include things like intercompany loans or maybe your preferred stock also references coupons based on LIBOR. So really trying to get your arms around where that full inventory of exposure is, is is your first starting point. Then your next step, I think, is then coming up with your action plan to address those LIBOR contracts, whether that's looking at to see does it already have robust fallback language. And if they don't, then starting to come up with a plan of how you're going to start taking action to coordinate to get that fallback language in there. And that could include things like for derivative contracts, having to adopt the ISDA protocols that they've published, maybe looking to some of the recommended uh, language that has been published by the ARC for different types of agreements. The next thing I would look at is starting to think about from more of a risk management perspective, what your real exposure is as you're looking forward from an interest rate risk management perspective. And so you know, with LIBOR going away, with all indications it's going to be likely gone by at the latest June 2023, reality is, is that nobody will then have a LIBOR exposure beyond that date. So if you have a long dated contract that goes out past 2023 and it's currently referencing LIBOR, then at best you really have LIBOR exposure between now to 2023. And then you have exposure to whatever the replacement interest rate is that you have in that fallback mechanism, whether that's SOFR or some other rate that you've picked. So starting to think about your interest rate risk management more through that lens. And then I would start thinking about the operational and accounting exposures that you might have beyond the obvious just contract exposures that we talked about earlier. So some examples from an accounting perspective is thinking about where do you currently use LIBOR to maybe support some of your accounting estimates? So for things like your impairment analysis, whether that's for goodwill or other types of assets or intangibles, are you using LIBOR as part of your discount rate uh, when you're doing those analysis? And if so, starting to think about, do you need to start using a different rate that has more liquidity and robustness behind it as we're getting closer to the end of LIBOR? Thinking about your third-party vendor systems, are they currently set up to handle whatever alternative benchmark interest rate you're planning to use for these contracts once LIBOR goes away? So I know I threw a few things out there, Heather, but that's the kind of a handful of stuff that I would start thinking through if I was a CFO, controller, or treasurer. Okay, so it sounds like, David, really the first thing is make sure you just have a full population. And you know, without that, you know you're already going to have problems and then go from there. How about, Chip, any thoughts from you? 
Yeah, no, I, I absolutely agree with, with, with what David said. I mean, this is not just about changing contracts. It, it does require, you know, some analysis and some planning. You know, another operational consideration is going to be cash management. If your products are truly going to put you in a position where you may not know the exact amount of cash that will be required until you get very close to the payment date because you're looking backwards at what daily average or daily compounded rates are going to be, that changes how you want to think about cash management. The last thing I would leave people with is stick your toe into the SOFR world. Get a bank deposit index to SOFR, borrow money index to SOFR, do an investment in a bond index to SOFR. Everybody who's done something with respect to SOFR and kind of stuck their toe in the pool a little bit, they've learned something, you know, whether it's about how these rates and instruments actually work, how the terms are different from what they may be seeing in the past to some of the operational and systems issues that David mentioned, sort of kind of taking a dry run with a small instrument is certainly a way to further bottom out some of those questions and issues. All right. Well, definitely a lot to think about. And to rewind to where I started, this is going to be a key area for companies to really start focusing as soon as they can get through their year-end reporting. So thank you for all the insights. Uh, now, just to wrap things up, we are recording this on Precedence Day. So I was tempted to give you a history quiz but instead, since we're in the midst of another big winter storm in much of the U.S., I thought I would ask you your views on snow and winter. I personally am a fan, if you don't think about the practical side of shoveling. But Chip, I'll go to you first. Well, in, uh, in New Jersey, we've certainly had more snow and a little bit of icing as well than we have in previous years. So the good news is the snow blower that I haven't used in the last couple of years is still working. But, you know, I do really like to look outside and see the snow on the trees. But I've had my share. I'm good. I'm, I'm ready for spring. I'm ready for some warm weather. Now, David, you might have a bit of a different perspective. Yeah, uh, I'm actually down in Florida. So I'm taking advantage of the whole work from home, remote working opportunities that we have here. So I'm definitely happy looking at the weather app each day and feeling good about that decision I made to come down here. That being said, I do miss uh, with the cold weather, the excuse that gives you to stay indoors and snuggle up, you know, watching some bad TV because there's not much else happening outside. So uh, I have to do all that catch up when I get out of this gorgeous weather we have down in Florida and, and when I head back up north for next winter. All right. Well, both again, thank you so much for joining me. Really appreciate it. If you have more questions on the LIBOR transition, visit our LIBOR page on pwc.com and listen to our prior podcast on LIBOR released last April, but still relevant. Links to both of these resources are in today's episode's show notes. Join me back here every Tuesday for new episodes on all things accounting and reporting. And on Thursdays, join me for our series for CFOs and controllers. This week, we're wrapping up our deep dive look into ESG, talking about S, social. So that you never miss an episode of any of our podcasts, subscribe to this series wherever you listen to your podcasts. And to stay up to date on all the latest content, let's connect on LinkedIn. For PwC, I'm Heather Horn. Thanks for tuning in. This podcast is brought to you by PwC, all rights reserved. PwC refers to the U.S. member firm or one of its subsidiaries or affiliates and may sometimes refer to the PwC network. Each member firm is a separate legal entity. Please see www.pwc.com structure for further details. This podcast is for general information purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for consultation with professional advisors.